0: Well, good morning. Isn't it wonderful to hear the piano again? So nice. We are very close to having our uh, renovation completely finished, and uh, just so glad that all of our um, musicians and singers can be uh, gathered on the platform this morning. Well, as we uh, uh, begin our time, this is our hospitality Sunday, so there is not any Sunday school uh, happening uh, today, so that means no inquirers' class uh, as well. Um, But we have um, the Lord's Supper, uh, but that's going to be happening tonight. Uh, It's one of the two evening uh, Lord's Suppers that we have during our year, and uh, so we encourage you to come back for that. Uh, And if you are visiting with us, we are so glad you can be part of our time together and uh, would ask if you uh, would complete the... um, either the connect card which is the little piece of paper in this uh, pocket in front of you or text the word welcome to that number that's on the screen it just helps us know uh, that you are with us this morning we would also invite you to our Redeemer open house which is next Sunday and uh, there's more information about that in the bulletin it's just a way to get to know a few more people Um, you know you can get to know people in the foyer but it's nice to sit down and have a little bit longer conversation and get to know a few other people so we'd encourage you to be a part of that Uh, Right after our worship service this morning, uh, we will have our children still uh, having their singing time uh, right up here. And then uh, after that, uh, there's going to be the Redeemer Choir Rehearsal at 11 o'clock. That's in preparation for uh, all of our different uh, holiday uh, celebrations uh, with Thanksgiving and other things. Um, I just encourage you to participate in that. Uh, we also have coming up on Wednesday, November 23rd, is our Thanksgiving Eve. And uh, that's a time each year that we come together as a body of Christ and just get to uh, worship our God. We get to celebrate the things that he has been doing in our lives. And we get to hear uh, from one another just testimonies about what God is doing. And what I usually like to do is have at least one person for each section who is prepared to share something and then we kind of open it up to others so we have three different themes this year one is uh something that we're rejoicing about maybe god has done something special <clears throat> in your life this year and you want to share uh your testimony of rejoicing uh maybe it's an uh, the second thing is perhaps an answered prayer something that you've been pursuing the lord about and he has just brought it to fruition uh this coming this year and you want to celebrate that. And the last one is giving thanks even in this, right, in all circumstances, recognizing that we can give thanks even when things are not going uh, the way that we want them to go. And maybe that's your testimony uh, for this particular year. But we just, if if you have an interest in kind of being the one to start each of those times, I'd love to talk to you and just have you uh, be prepared to share. Uh, Lastly, we have an announcement regarding our food pantry. Uh, Steve Hill is here, and uh, thank you for coming.
1: Good morning. Have you ever had a problem? We've all had problems, but have you ever had a problem putting food on the table? Maybe not. Maybe someone in your family has, or your extended family. Well, here at Redeemer, we want to help with that. And we have what's called a food pantry. And our food pantry is coming up this Saturday between 10 and 11 and we could use some help. We announce the time and the schedule of the food pantry and the needs as well in the Redeemer life every month. So if you have an opportunity to take a look at that and see what what the current needs are, that would be great. Regardless of those current needs, we're always open to anything that you would like to give in regards to a food pantry as well. Specifically, any non-expired Household pantry items are always welcome to share. This might include, but not limited to, all canned foods, fresh food from your garden, personal hygiene items, even frozen meats. We have a freezer so we can maintain those. If you feel called to participate, to help, to be here, to pray with people here during the food pantry, just let Carrie or myself know. And most importantly though, if you could be praying, For Redeemer's food pantry. Pray for those in need that the food coming to them would be helpful, would be encouraging to them, that they may be lifted up from that. Pray also that the food they receive would be food for the body, but that here at Redeemer, the Lord might fill their soul. We ask people when they come to the food pantry, If they're connected with a church, with a Bible-believing church. And if they're not, we invite them to come. And we've been very blessed to have some of those people come to Redeemer. And that is kind of the point, isn't it? Not necessarily that they would come to Redeemer, but they would hear the gospel. And that they would hear the good news of Jesus Christ. So, if we could prepare our hearts for worship, it would be wonderful.
0: So what reason has the Lord brought us here this morning? Some would say to worship him, and that is exactly why we are here. Uh, Some would say because I was invited, and we are so glad uh, that you came and answered that invitation. Uh, Others might say to receive a blessing from the Lord. And the psalmist tells us that we actually have an opportunity to bless our God. Hear the call to worship from Psalm 103. We get to rejoice in the goodness of the only holy God as we stand together. to you because you are indeed our holy god you have called us to be gathered before you to know who it is that we meet with to know the one who created all things by the word of your mouth the one who sits enthroned and rules over all things that kings are guided by you and the power of your spirit because there is no greater authority that we can come and we can worship We ask that your spirit would guide our hearts, that we would submit to your authority in our own lives, that we would demonstrate that we are people of the King, that you are the one who is molding and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ. And we confess that there is no one like you. Amen. who created heaven and earth, he calls us to seek his face. And so as we have this responsive prayer from Psalm 27, uh, that is what we will do uh, together uh, in responsive prayer. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O oh, you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not.
2: O God, my salvation.
0: For, the, for my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Jesus. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living wait for the Lord be strong and let your heart take courage wait for the Lord well as we consider those things in our own hearts in the way that you would want to respond to the Lord personally let's take a time of silent prayer as we go to him Father, we acknowledge that we have offended you, that we have not loved you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we have not loved our neighbor in the same way we want to be loved, and certainly not as Christ has loved us, but in every possible way we fall short of your glory. And yet in your incredible patience, and in your incredible grace that is shown to us in Christ, you welcome us to confess these things to you. And for whatever things, Lord, that we have resisted confessing, that we have resisted acknowledging, Lord, that you would break our hearts of those things, and that you would enable us to find the incredible mercy and peace that is by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We come celebrating because he is the only way of your forgiveness. And we give you thanks in his name. Amen. We have a wonderful truth to meditate on in the promise of pardon from Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Well, Jesus indeed gave himself. He gave his life blood in our place so that we might sing that that is the only way of our forgiveness. Nothing but the blood. Let us stand together.
3: Heavenly Father we are so thankful for this morning the rising Sun over the horizon that illumines your magnificent glory and creativity we thank you Lord for Redeemer Church a beautiful church that she is we thank you that we can come together with open doors and windows and enjoy freedom to give praise and worship to the king of the universe the one who hung the stars and planets We thank you, Lord, for our brothers and sisters and extended family in Christ as well to that we can support and lean upon one another. We thank you for your word that has been unchanged for over 2,000 years. We thank you for driveway conversations, sidewalk conversations to where we know that this life isn't all that there is. We thank you, Lord, for the many blessings that you give us that we may not acknowledge. We thank you for freedom. We thank you that we're here in the west michigan to where we can seek you we thank you for the many many communities with uh, good churches we thank you for the preaching of the word from this pulpit we thank you for the clarity and the precision that comes with that we thank you lord for the gifts and talents that you give us that we can give back to your kingdom we thank you most importantly for the cross we thank you, Lord, for this morning and a morning of praise and worship. We pray in your name. Amen. Take this the prelude to quiet our hearts and soften our minds to uh, take in the operatory. Thank you. <laughs>
4: There are a couple of things I want to draw your attention to before we go to our Lord in prayer. Many of us have been praying for Gail Stahl. She had surgery this past week, and I learned this morning that she is doing quite well. So thank you for the prayers that you've offered for her, and we'll pray for her continued recovery along with all of the others who are on our prayer list. Again, the invitation I give to you is if you would like for us to pray for you, please send a note to the office, and we'll do that uh, when we come together on Sunday morning. Now, the other thing I want to draw your attention to is really a story, and I hope you'll indulge me for just a moment. It was in 2000 that I went to South Florida with a friend of mine. We went to a pastor's conference at Ligonier Ministries. Many of you may be familiar with that ministry. It was started by R.C. Sproul, who has since deceased. We went to the conference, I believe it was a Friday and a Saturday, and on Sunday morning we were still in town, so we went to St. Andrew's where R.C. Sproul was preaching And after the music was finished, much as we just enjoyed here, although I happen to think the music we're enjoying this morning and praising God was actually nicer than what I heard that morning. It's so beautiful. R.C. Sproul rose to speak and he said, ordinarily I'd never do this on a Sunday morning, but this morning I am going to preach about who you should vote for on election day. That was 2000. You might remember that, Bush versus Gore, the hanging chads, all of that, if you're old enough to remember. I'm telling you that this morning for two reasons. The first is, of course, I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. That would be inappropriate. But I will tell you that voting is very important, and we're going to pray about that this morning. The kingdom in which we live is a heavenly kingdom, but we inhabit the kingdom of this earth and we are grateful to belong in the United States of America where we have the freedom this morning to worship God openly. So please do prayerfully consider voting on Tuesday and make your choices well-informed. The other thing I want to note for, that, for you about that is whatever happens on Tuesday, Jesus Christ is still king. And the kingdom that he came to establish will never fail. The psalmist says that the nations are like a drop in the bucket compared to the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And let's bow to him in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, it is good to call to you because there is no one like you. We could search the world over. We could search the annals of history to determine if there is anyone like you and we would find no one. Even in the Scriptures, the rulers of the nations often are forced to acknowledge you as king of kings and lord of lords. We think of the rulers of Babylon who are forced to acknowledge at a certain point there is no God like the God that Daniel worships. There is no king like him. And even when Jesus was being crucified, Pontius Pilate wrote in words over the cross, Jesus Christ, the king of the Jews, he meant it ironically, even dismissively, And yet Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he is king over all the earth, over Jews and Gentiles alike. And so we can come with great joy this morning into your presence to give you praise, not only for what you're doing in this world, but also for who you are, through the ups and the downs, through the struggles and the joys, through the pain and the sorrow and the greatest heights of our joy. There is no one like you. We're glad that you're ruling and governing And we can, therefore, enter into an election on Tuesday with absolute confidence. We can cast our vote without fear. We have no reason to hesitate. We can study the candidates' positions and vote in according to the conscience that you've given us by your Spirit without wondering whether or not our world will end as we know it. Father, we do pray for our nation. Paul commands that Timothy and those who read his book pray for rulers and those who are in authority over us. And we do pray for that this morning. We ask that you would give us rulers, men and women who want to rule in a way that is just and true, that will provide for a free society where we can gather openly and worship openly and speak openly without fear of consequence. The complexities of what it means to live in a free society have been worked out in our own nation over many years. But we do pray again this morning that by your power you would superintend in whatever happens on Tuesday in a way that the opportunity we have as a church to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ would be clearly preserved. Father, we pray for Christians this morning and other places in the world where that freedom is not afforded where they live in fear of opposition. We can think of Christians even in places in the world where it is difficult to be a Christian because of corruption. We think of our brother Zach Francois. Father, the difficulty that the Haitians are suffering is partly because of natural disaster and yet is in large part because of a corrupt government. We pray for Christians in various parts of Africa. We pray for Christians in China and in North Korea. We pray for Christians in the Middle East. All of these are places in which it is difficult to call on the name of Christ. But we say this morning with them, you are greater than any governor, any king, any ruler, any prime minister, any dictator. You are greater than them all. And we pray that you would cause the gospel of Jesus Christ to flourish, even in places where the government has done their very best to oppose it. We're thankful for, for reports from the Middle East and from places even like North Korea and China, where the gospel is flourishing, and many Christians have come to call upon you, even in spite of that opposition. And it moves us in this country to ask the question, Lord, would you choose to work here as well, where we have so much freedom and opportunity that we often just pass by it, giving very little thought. Make us your missionaries in our families, in our communities, in our cities, in our states, in our countries, and across the world, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be central not only to us personally, and we would call in your name, but, Lord, we would have the gospel of Jesus Christ spread throughout our communities and then our world. Give us courage, Lord. Give us compassion, give us boldness, give us, as Jesus said, the meekness that is required in order to inherit the earth. We also pray more specifically this morning for those in our community who are hurting. We pray again for the Kike family. We pray for your comfort in the loss of someone very near to them, especially in a day of worship, many of us who have similarly lost those who are close to us. Maybe it is someone who is a father, a husband, a mother, a daughter, a child. When we gather together like this, it is very easy to feel the sharpness of their absence. And we pray for comfort in a day in which we look forward to the future. We ask for comfort in this moment. We also give thanks with the bakers for the continued growth and health of Everly. We're thankful for the recovery you're giving Cassie as well. Father, we rejoice on this. You have spared them. And we are so thankful and pray that you would continue to give healing and growth. We also pray this morning for Clarice Lorup. We pray especially as she waits for her doctor's appointment to be made. Lord, would you cause that to occur in the next few days even that the cancer that she is suffering with will be able to be treated in a way that is effective and you would give her many more years, more life to be a blessing to her family, to be a blessing to us as a community. Father, thank you for her presence with us. Thank you for bringing her here. And we pray that not only would you give her health, but Lord, that we would also be a blessing to her. And then we rejoice as we have already heard about the successful surgery that Mrs. Stahl, that that Gail Stahl has, um, that she has undergone and enjoyed. We pray that you would give her continued recovery, that you would give her freedom from pain, that she would know your closeness and your presence. She would have no reason to fear. Father, thank you for the way that you have answered this prayer. And finally, Lord, we pray this morning for the community that you have honored us to be a part of. And we pray for, for our communities community specifically with those that we can honor by serving them with our food bank. We thank you for the generosity of those in this congregation to give over and over to supply needs. But Father, we pray that you would help us to see that we're not simply giving to others, but also others give to us. That ultimately you've given us absolutely everything that we need And so when we give to others, it is out of the richness of what you've provided. And those who may lack physical necessities also have much to give to those of us who are rich. That's according to James. And we pray that you would relieve us from the notion that we're simply the better, the stronger, the wiser, the more careful. Instead, draw us to the mercy that you have shown to us That out of that kindness that you have shown, we would exercise the same kindness, whether we are rich or poor, whether we are strong or weak, we would see that all are called to be yours. And now, Lord, we end this prayer by asking again that you would humble us and exalt us through your word. You've brought us to a place in the scriptures that is familiar to many people. And yet we pray the familiarity would not breed contempt. Instead, it would open our hearts that we would want to hear and believe. We pray for those of us who have been here many, t- many times in the past, for whom this is a familiar routine. Father, keep that from blunting the force of your word. We pray for others who may be here for the first time. We're joyful, Lord, that no matter how long we have been here, Father, you are the one who draws, and your spirit is the one who changes. And so we pray by the power of your Spirit that you would not only hear this prayer, but you would also bless the reading and the preaching of your word. For we come in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. I'm very thankful this morning to turn in our Bibles to John chapter 3. Many of us who have read the Bible before will recognize John chapter 3, especially verse 16. But we'll begin reading at verse 11 and then read through verse 21. This is really the second half of a passage that you heard if you were here a week ago where a man comes to Jesus. His name is Nicodemus, and he has a question for Jesus. And the question is about being born again. And Jesus answered that question. And now what we read in verse 11 is a follow-up to the answer that Jesus provides Nicodemus. Please give your attention to the Word of God as I read it. Jesus says, beginning at verse 11, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his work should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is his word. May he bless it this morning. I hardly need to tell you in introduction to this sermon that verse 16 of our chapter is easily the best known verse in the Bible. Even if you would not call yourself a Christian when I say for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him You think to yourself, I've heard that somewhere. But here's what I want you to see about that verse. In fact, verses 16, 17, and 18 within this passage as a whole. In fact, I'm going to focus on those three verses because I want you to see within the context of this passage, Jesus is not merely muttering nice words for us to mull over in connection with Christianity. No, what Jesus is doing is something more significant, far more significant, giving us a challenge that I think especially plays well in the culture in which we live. And by culture, I'm not talking merely about the United States as a whole or Western culture. I'm speaking about West Michigan culture where there can be a lot of perception about the trappings of religion. Jesus, in this passage, is calling us to go beyond the surface of religion to the core of Christianity. And he does that in three contrasts. In fact, as you're listening to me and you think, here's Jesus calling to this religious man to go beyond sort of the trappings of religiosity to the core of Christianity... I want you to hear this not only through the ears of Nicodemus, I want you to hear it through the ears that God has given you as well. Three contrasts. The first contrast is this, each one coming from one of these three verses I said I would focus on. The first is in verse 16. And it's a contrast that I would call the inside-outside contrast. And what I'm trying to do in interpreting this verse for you is to show you that what Jesus is talking about applies to you. This is not merely for Nicodemus or other people, but it is for you. It is really foundational to the question Jesus is going to ask Nicodemus and the question that I'm going to ask you. In order to understand this inside-outside contrast, you have to remember, or maybe I can just explain to you, what happens in the previous verses of chapter 3. This man Nicodemus has come to Jesus, and he has a question. He's wondering about new life. He's probably heard Jesus explain this. It was unusual to him, it wasn't something the other rabbis talked about. And now Nicodemus comes to Jesus because he wants Jesus to explain to him what this new life is about. Please understand from Nicodemus' perspective that he would have assumed naturally that this new life belonged to the Jews. This was good news for them. This assumption that the good news was for Jews went back many, many, many years, all the way back into the Old Testament, and that for the good news to be extended beyond the Jews to Gentiles to whoever heard the good news would have seemed seemed very unlikely to Nicodemus. But I want to show you this is exactly the point that Jesus is making. And I want to show you that not only from this passage, but from two other places in the Gospels as well. Two places that come from Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, the Gospel writer is explaining to us something that Jesus does when he makes his public appearance in his hometown. He is asked to read the scroll on the Sabbath, and he reads from Isaiah. And in Luke 4, when he finishes reading from that scroll, he makes a very brief application of that passage to the people who are sitting there, all Jews. In the passage he read from Isaiah, there is blessing, the writer says, for the Israelites, and there is also condemnation for the Gentiles. But when Jesus reads and explains that passage... He not only leaves off the condemnation for the Gentiles, he also implies there's condemnation for the Israelites who do not believe. Do you remember how angry the Jews were? It says they took them out to the edge of a cliff outside of town and wanted to throw them off. They were so angry that condemnation would not be given to the Gentiles, but instead it might come to them. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus doubles down by saying immediately after that event that in another Old Testament story, Elijah the prophet was commanded by God in the middle of a famine where no one had any food to leave the nation of Israel and to go to the corrupt and pagan country of Sidon to help a widow in that land. Bring her food, God said. He was a Gentile, someone that Nicodemus would assume, would have assumed, was not within those who could be blessed by God. And then Jesus not only doubles down in Luke 4, he triples down, if that is a phrase I can use, to say, in the days of Elisha there were many lepers in Israel, but the prophet cleansed Naaman the Syrian. Not only a Gentile, but an enemy of Israel. God cleansed him. The assumption the Israelites had that God only cared for the Israelites, he only cares about the insiders, those who've been religious for a long time, that these words would only apply to those who've been in church for a generation or perhaps two or three, in Luke chapter 4 is proved wrong. In fact, dead wrong. And in our passage, in verse 15, we read at the very end of verse 15 that Jesus corrects that wrong assumption by making his own point about the Israelites wandering around in the desert. And God sends venomous snakes among the Israelites as they're wandering. Wandering, I should say. And they are saved when Moses places before them a pre-Christ, On a cross, they look to the deliver and they are saved. Now, here's the question: Who's eligible to look at the cross and be saved? He said, only those who look good, talk right, and already already are religiously inclined. Nicodemus would have come to this conversation assuming if you're not an Israelite, an insider, these words could not apply to you. Look at the very end of verse 15. Jesus says in one of the most stunning words Nicodemus could have heard, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Whoever. This is not intended for a narrowly select group who happened to be in the right position in terms of the religious bent. No, Jesus says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he carries that forward in verse 16, where in the famous words that many of us know, he says, for God so loved the world. Now, what is this world? It is true that God made the world, but in the context of this passage... Jesus intends something more specific than the natural world, the creation that we enjoy so much in West Michigan. He's referring to the world outside the boundaries of the nation of Israel, what we sometimes mean when we say the world that is out there. Jesus said, for God so loved the world. That is not just the Israelites But those who are outside of the Israelites, those who didn't fit into Nicodemus' scheme of who could belong to the kingdom of God, for God so loved the world. This is a wonderful truth to remember. God's grace goes way beyond those whom we might expect to be saved. Be honest. I don't think that I would be one that God would naturally save. Be honest with your own heart. Look at where you have been. Look at who you are. Look at the way in which God has brought you through all kinds of twists and turns in your life, many of your own corrupt making. And yet God has set his affection on you. You are not an outsider. There is no insider-outsider distinction in John chapter 3. There are, there's none of this. Some of us belong and others are trying to make their way in. That is contrary to the nature of the gospel. In fact, not only is it contrary to Luke 4 in John chapter 3, but much of the New Testament into Paul's writings are all about breaking down the separation between the insiders, the Jews, and the outsiders, the Gentiles. If I can just put it this way, how do you know that the gospel is clearly seen in a community of believers? That is the kingdom of God and the outsider, insider, reality that it is broken down, that kingdom of God, reality, there is no insider, outsider. There's no naturally religious, there's no one whom God looks at and says, this one appeals to me more than that one because of how good they are. In the Scriptures, that's contrary to the gospel. Do you believe that? Do you really? Because a couple of days ago, somebody came to my office. I just happened to be here. Someone I doubt I'll ever see again. I was here early in the morning before the worker showed up to work on our nearly completed project up here. He knocked on the door, bang, bang, bang. And of course, when I went to open it, I was rude. I said, the door's open. He said, I got in a fight with my girlfriend last night. She kicked me out of our hotel room. I've been wandering around and I need to make a phone call and maybe, maybe use the bathroom. You know the first thought that went through my mind? Be careful. Be careful. And this man who doesn't look that good, doesn't smell that good, this is not really who I'm looking to serve. In fact, it took me halfway home to realize that the jacket I had over the back of my chair could better have been given to him than used by me because I have many others at home. I drove back and by that time it was gone. And I thought to myself in anticipation of this sermon, it is one thing to intellectually affirm the fact there are no insiders, outsiders in the kingdom of Christ. It's quite another to believe it to be true. But look at the passage. It says in verse 16, For God so loved the world including the man who seemed most unlikely to me to become a follower of Jesus Christ for whom I responded rudely when he had sincere need. That man needed the gospel of Jesus Christ. And instead of me thinking to myself, I'm going to preach a sermon on John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, I thought to myself, literally true, I need to pick up my books from my office and head home so I can write a sermon on John 3, verse 16. <laughs> That's the higher of irony, at least in a pastor's life. And I want to be even more specific than that. If you're here this morning or you're listening over our YouTube stream, this is meant to be personal. That is, not only is it meant for Nicodemus to believe, it's also for you to hear. Even if you have felt like an outsider all of your life, because of whatever circumstance it is, either of your own making or what's been done to you, this passage has come to you this morning so that you can hear, as I've said, this sermon is for you. You're supposed to hear it because God so loved the world. Which means there's a second thing I want to say to you as well in verse 17. And again, since it's been a minute since we read it, I want to read to you it again. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Now that you're familiar with what the world means there, Jesus is speaking not only about the Israelites, but the Gentiles as well. The verse introduces a second contrast to us beyond the inside outside contrast to now the condemnation salvation contrast. To put it sort of this way, verse 17 introduces to us the reality that what we're talking about here this morning has ultimate consequences. This is not merely a nice lecture. About John 3.16 and how you should believe some things about the most famous verses in the Bible. This is to say the call to whoever, the way that you respond has ultimate consequences. Let me explain this to you. Many of you know that for a number of years, in addition to being a pastor, I was a chaplain in a prison. And one of the questions I would ask when men came to the chapel, they would say, hey, Chaplain, or sometimes they call me father or pastor, or whatever. We'd really like to do a Bible study with you. How would you like to be the one to lead that Bible study? Eventually, I did a number of Bible studies, but I would always ask them this question at the beginning of a Bible study What do you think Christianity is about? What is Christianity? The vast majority of them, as perhaps some of us would answer, Christianity is about becoming a better person. Now, to be sure, Christians should be good people. But at the heart of Christianity is not, first of all, being a good person. That is an implication of Christianity. It is not at its core. It is a result. It is not its essence. I used to think when men would tell me that, that's sort of ironic since we're in prison. When you give me this answer. Many of them would also assume, and I think these two things went together, that God's primary disposition toward this world, to them, was that God was just waiting there, since they were not good people, for the particular moment in which he could really hurt them. One described it to me this way, I'm just waiting for God to whack me because of how bad I have been. Some of them took the fact they were sitting in prison as a demonstration that all the evil they'd ever done had come back to haunt them. And again, there's a certain logic to that. It's true. But for many of them, I would go to John 3, verse 17, and read these words to them. For God did not send his Son into the world, that is, to you, to condemn the world but that the world might be saved through him now the word condemned here does not mean there is no condemnation to those who reject Jesus Christ no you can read before and after these verses to find that to be true you are duly warned but in this verse when it says to condemn the world God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world What Jesus is saying is that it is not the intention of God to send Jesus into this world so that you would be condemned. Rather, the point of sending Jesus into this world is that you would be saved, that you would find salvation in Him, that instead of experiencing condemnation without Him, you would find salvation with Him. God's intention to you this morning, I can say with confidence as you're listening to what I'm saying is that you would hear my voice and the words that I'm expressing, the truth that is found in this passage, and you would say to yourself, I want that. I wanna be saved. I wanna know Jesus Christ. I don't want condemnation. I want salvation. I've seen all the places I've been, I've tried so many other things. Here's where I see the grace of Jesus Christ, and I want that. I don't want loneliness, I want the companionship of His Spirit. I don't want to be trying things that always end up badly. I'm going to give myself to the one who's promised to care for me. Please understand how important this second contrast is. Again, one of the things that God is doing in this very moment is expressing to you, to you, what he has written in this verse. He is speaking the word of God to you that he did not send Jesus in this world so that at the moment at which you're hearing about Jesus Christ, you would be condemned, but rather that you would believe. It is his desire for you that you would hear and believe. It is a gospel of grace. He is moving in your heart as you listen to my voice that you would also come to believe in him, that you would see that what he gives to you, you do not deserve, but he gives it to you freely and out of nothing more than his kindness. I believe that would have sounded very difficult to Nicodemus. I think he would have struggled to believe that. I suppose he would have looked into his heart and he would have said to himself, there are so many reasons why God would reject me. We don't know a great deal about Nicodemus beside what is written in this passage, but you know a great deal about your own heart, do you not? Can you not look into your heart this morning and see many reasons why God would reject you, even if you are all dressed up very nicely? You know God sees into the core of who we are. He knows the things that we have done. He knows the words we've spoken. He even knows the thoughts of our hearts. And yet in this verse, Jesus says that he did not come into this world to condemn you, but that you might be saved through him. Grab onto it. Hold it. Make it the core of your being. Some of you might be familiar with the series of videos. In fact, there's a website. It's, I don't know if it's a movement. <laughs> what makes a movement? But there's a series of video on a website. You can find them on YouTube or just go to their website. They're called I Am Second. You're familiar with those? It's a whole number of testimonies, most of them very famous people, about how God came into their life and Jesus Christ saved them. One particular one drew drew my attention this past week. It's someone you might not know. His name is Michael Moulton. He wasn't that famous before Christ saved him. He might not be that famous now, but his story is compelling. He said in 10 years he was arrested 27 times drug abuse, alcohol abuse, running afoul of the law time after time after time. He ended up in prison, as you might guess. It was only through the grace of God, while he was in prison, someone gave him a Bible. And because he was one of the very few people in his pod who could read proficiently enough other prisoners would come to him and ask him to read the Bible because they were bored. And the more he read, not only the more did they ask for him to read, the more he realized what he was reading was affecting his own heart until he came to tell them, this is not only the Bible I'm reading to you, I believe this to be true. He came to the realization that God in the Scriptures was not coming to him to condemn him, although there were at least 27 obvious reasons why he would. But God in the Scriptures was coming in Jesus Christ, full of the grace that was demonstrated in the cross to this man to save him. Maybe your life is not nearly as dramatic as Michael Multan's was, but I also want to speak very pointedly to those of us who have quiet quit God. We've rebelled against Him just as much in our hearts as others have, but we've hidden it from others. We have maybe said to ourselves, as long as I go along with the flow, as long as I appear to be a good person, as long as I'm doing the right things, nobody really knows. God knows. He knew in Nicodemus, and I hate to insult any of you in particular, but you're probably not as righteous as Nicodemus. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, God is calling you. And this morning I'm saying to you, He's calling you as well. And the condemnation salvation contrast is meant in verse 17 to draw you to the point at which you can hear what Jesus says in verse 18. The inside-outside contrast is meant to tell you, this message is for you. The condemnation-salvation contrast is meant to say, here are the stakes. And now in verse 18, the belief-unbelief contrast is meant to ask you a question. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned. The him there, the antecedent is, of course, Jesus himself. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. You notice three times Jesus says belief because the critical question of verse 18 is the matter of belief, will you or not? It's belief unbelief. Let me just explain to you what belief is. I'll give you a technical explanation, and then I'll give you a we're out on the street definition, and you ask me what does it mean to believe. Here's the technical definition. In the history of our theology, of which I'm very, very thankful, we have talked about faith having three constituent parts. There's notitia, which is the the knowledge of God. That is, if you're going to have faith, you have to know something you don't have belief in something, you can't know. No, God has come in the scriptures to give you that knowledge, to tell you both who He is and who Jesus Christ is. If you're going to believe, you have to know. In the same way, if you're going to love your husband or wife, you have to know them. It doesn't mean you know them exhaustively, it doesn't know you mean you know everything about God or Jesus Christ. If you're waiting for that knowledge to become exhaustive before you turn to Jesus, you'll never arrive. But if you know that Jesus, is the Son of God come into the world to save sinners? You have the knowledge necessary to believe. Notitia. A census. You hear the word assent in there, do you not? Assent is to say that not only do you know who Jesus is, but you believe that knowledge to be true. That is, it matters. You believe. That this is a truth that changes and transforms. It's certainly possible to know a lot of things that do not matter in life. I'm sure I could figure out how much ground beef is going for at Meyer. Probably wouldn't change my life. Those kinds of bits of knowledge are not what we mean by what we assent to. What we assent to in the Christian faith is not only that Jesus is the Son of God, that he's come into the world to save sinners, that he's ruling from the right hand of God now. What I mean by assent is what the early Christians meant when they confessed the Apostles' Creed. These were the basic truths of the Christian faith. Every Christian afterward, of any substance, has affirmed, if you can say the Apostles' Creed, if you believe it to be true, you are a Christian. But the early Christians did not write the Apostles' Creed simply because they needed to have a list of things to believe. No, they wrote the Apostles' Creed. They summarized Christian faith because they lived in a culture that said if you believe that Jesus is king, then the rulers can put you to death. You can be burned, you can be thrown to the lions. And so the Christians believe the Apostles' Creed not only with their minds, they believed it with their hearts to the points that it mattered. And Christian faith has that as a component. We believe it not only with our minds, but we believe it to be true to the degree that it matters. And the beyond, notitia and fiducia, or assensus is fiducia. That is what we generally refer to as faith. It is the knowledge, it is the ascent, but then it is the giving yourself over entirely to that truth. And here, my friend, is the essence of faith. It goes back so far as the Old Testament where the Israelites were trying to follow God along with other things. They're condemned by the prophets time and again because he was God plus something, God plus something that's translated into the New Testament where Paul says to the Galatians, you cannot have works of the law and Jesus as well. It is Christ and Christ alone. It is only Jesus. It is not what you bring to the table. As wonderful and as successful and as notorious as you might be, you bring nothing to the table When the grace of Christ is applied, nothing. Which means also that nothing is required, except for this, as the old song says, all you need to know is your need of Him. And the fiducia asks you to give yourself to Him entirely. To say, I now live, as Paul says, not from myself, but I live from Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's famous words in 1 Corinthians? That I no longer live to myself, I live to the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's fiducia. And do you hear that as the heart of real faith? That instead of living for yourself, all your ambitions, your dreams, the things that you think would make your life entirely complete, you give them to Jesus Christ. He pays what you owe to the holy God that we have sung about twice this morning. He gives you the righteousness you need. And he calls you to live after him. This third contrast is meant to ask you that question. Do you believe? Do you believe? You notice in verse 18 that in some ways Jesus seems to take back what he said in verse 17. He said, oh, the condemnation, the salvation, those are already determined. How are they determined? But whether you believe in the Son of God whom Jesus has sent. If we're walking down the street and you were to find out I'm a pastor, it happens with some frequency you might be surprised. I'm in a restaurant, and I meet someone, and they say, oh, so you're a pastor, what does that mean? And often there's a religious conversation that follows. Imagine you were to ask me as someone sitting in a restaurant, what does it mean to believe? What I would tell you is to believe is to give yourself to Jesus Christ. That's the essence of belief. Or as our confession and our catechism say, to rest and rely upon Him alone. Do you see that the three contrasts in our passage are meant to lead you to the point of asking that question this morning? The inside-outside is meant to tell you this message is for you. The salvation-condemnation contrast is meant to make sure you know the stakes are high. And the belief-unbelief contrast is meant to bring you to this point Do you believe? Some of you may be familiar with a movie that came out, I think, around 1980. Maybe there are parts of the movie I wouldn't commend. But it's become part of our cultural conversation. If you're faced with a very difficult choice, sometimes people will say you are faced with Sophie's Choice. That's a reference to that movie in which a woman who has lived a fairly immoral life is sentenced because she's a Jew to Auschwitz during World War II. It's likely that she's going to die while she is there. At least that's the expectation of many who entered those horrible gates. But she doesn't go there by herself. She goes there with her two children as well, a young boy and a young girl, as I recall. And through a series of events, she is forced to make a choice. That's Sophie's choice. The choice that is placed before her is this. You have two children. You must choose which one to save and which one goes to the gas chamber because if you do not choose, both of them will be sent. That Sophie's choice has come to be representative culturally of a choice that you would rather not face, but you have to and you have to make a choice lest something even worse occurs. This morning, what we're reading in this passage is not Sophie's choice. It is not a choice in which you are forced to determine something or something worse will happen. This is not a choice driven by fear, it is not a choice driven by how much you must do in order for something to be true. Now, this is a much better choice. It's a much better call. The call is this. The Savior who spoke to Nicodemus and uttered those words from John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus places that before Nicodemus as he does before you in order for those three contrasts to bring you to this critical question: will you believe? Because if you believe, it is salvation, not condemnation, for those who are both inside and outside. It is that belief that changes all of reality. Let's pray. Father, we have we've perhaps heard John 3.16 so many times that for some of us we are dulled to its impact. We pray that would not be true this morning. For others of us, we have heard this for the first time or perhaps one of the few times we've heard it. And the importance of this truth now strikes us in a way we didn't expect. Father, you were at work in whatever way these words come into our hearts. And we are very grateful that your word, as the prophet says, does not go out and then do nothing. But rather it always accomplishes the purpose for which it is sent. We believe your word is sent to us that we would know Christ... We would know his comfort, we would know his joy. And we're grateful that you brought us to this passage in order for that to be true this morning. Do your work in each one of our hearts. We pray in his holy name, amen. Let's stand and sing together these words about our Savior Jesus, man of sorrows. before we conclude with our doxology. Um, After the service is finished, the children will still be singing, the Sunday school children, so just come up to the front. After that, there'll be choir practice in anticipation of future holidays, so please come to that as well if you're able. And one slight change, there is the inquirer's class this morning, so if you are involved in that, just come back to my office, or if you'd like to be part of that, please come and see me. My office is over in the uh, office suite area, You'll just see me over there, and I'll welcome you. So receive this blessing from our God as you leave worship. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with you all. Go in his peace. Amen.